And last week, we began our series on the life of Abram and by looking at the first part of Genesis 12, um, how Abram was called by God to leave his country, his people, and his father's household and to go to the lands that God had promised to him. So Abram was promised a great deal by God, we saw last week. He was promised blessings for himself, blessings for his descendants, and blessings for the whole world. And we saw also last week that Abram trusted God and followed the call of God into the land of Canaan, where we left him last week. The land was already occupied at the time, so Abram and his household lived in tents in the land. So we left Abram in chapter 12, verse 9, living by faith in the land of Canaan. And his faith was in the God who called him and in the promises that God had made to him. And it's a pretty stirring picture of faith so far. It's the sort of picture that Christians love to hear about. You know, man hears the voice of God, leaves everything and follows him. It was inspirational stuff that we're looking at. But perhaps as you left Abram last week, there may have been a few nagging questions on your mind. How did Abram really know that he could trust God? After all, we're told here he hardly knows God at this point. Did Abram have any major doubts about God's ability to keep his promises? For most of us, I guess, would admit that we have had had doubts of that nature from time to time. I think the core question for the section we're looking at this morning really is, well, can Abram keep going? After such a great beginning, after such a bold start, can Abram keep trusting in the promises God has made to him and in the God who made those promises to him? Do you think it's fair to say the world around us is full of great beginnings which trail off soon afterwards? Again, it's that time of the year, end of February, when a lot of the New Year resolutions we may have made are often sort of a distant memory night or maybe try again next year. And then being a youth worker, I watched the Brit Awards a week ago, um, just finding keeping in touch with modern music. Um, and there's one of the categories in the Brit Awards, it's called the Best Newcomer Award. And as I watched, I couldn't help but remember that a couple of years ago, um, a band called A1 won the best newcomer. Now, maybe a show of hands, has anyone here heard of A1? I've got a few, yeah? Good stuff. Does anyone know the names of any of their songs? No. Is he yet? Oh, hang on, there's a hand. <laughs> Paul, no? Oh, sorry? Yes, which was a cover version. I'll kind of give you that, but yes. Okay, we do know one day one song this morning. But again, the amazing thing was they won the Best Newcomer Award, and as far as I know, well, they definitely disappeared, and I think they just split up straight afterwards. So again, we can all begin something well. We can be good newcomers. But the question is, can we keep going? Can we persevere at what we start? I mean, there's a cliche that says that life is a marathon, not a sprint. But again, maybe when you were watching Paula Radcliffe, a great marathon runner, have to give up midway through a marathon in Athens. It kind of robbed that cliche of any real assurance for us, I think. When I went to university as a young Christian, I was really privileged to make friends with lots of Christian students. And we were able to encourage one another throughout our Christian lives. And I remember one night sitting with a friend of mine, and she was, 
sharing with me a verse that meant so much to her in her Christian life. It was, it's a verse that means a lot to me really off the back of that conversation. And it's Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Just read that for us. It's basically being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is a fantastic verse, that verse. But the last I heard about my friend, she'd given up following Jesus. She was married to a non-Christian with no thought of Jesus. If you're a Christian here today, perhaps you've got your own stories like that. Of people you've known who've walked away from Jesus after a great beginning, after an enthusiastic start. And when we see that, we're forced to ask, how do I know I'll be any different? So when we read about Abram in Genesis here this morning, we're looking at a man who is living by faith, not by sight. And we can learn from Abram, because Abram's problem is our problem today in a way. How can I live by faith? How can I keep trusting in God when so many of his promises have not yet been fulfilled in my life? And I think we're forced to admit that in many ways we're in a better position than Abram was. We're living after Jesus. We've got a clearer understanding of who God is than Abram did at first. But the question does remain. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're just investigating the Christian life, investigating the God of Christianity, then Jesus urges you to count the cost before you commit to following him. In Luke 15, Jesus likens this to a builder working out how much his building is going to cost. He needs to make sure he's got enough money to finish the job before he starts it. So it's important to count the cost before entrusting your life to Jesus. And the obvious question we then ask is, well, is the cost too high? Well, I think we get real answers to these concerns as we look at Abram's life in the second half of chapter 12 and chapter 13 this morning. See, Abram's about to discover this morning, after his bold beginning last week, that living by faith is totally dependent on knowing the one in whom you are trusting. To live by faith, we need to know God. And we need to know whether or not God is able to keep us. Because we have to be honest with ourselves this morning. If survival in the Christian life is down to us and our staying power, then we could never be confident in our faith. Like Abram, to live by faith in God and in his promises to us, we need to know God better. And throughout Genesis 12 and 13, that's what's happening. Abram is getting to know God better. And we can benefit today from the lessons he learns. Because I think last week, we looked at the unique place Abram occupies in history. He's an ancestor of Jesus. He's the one to whom these promises are given that are going to bless the whole world. And we saw that Abram's name was great. But we need to guard ourselves against a very real danger when we look at Abram or any other biblical character. That is to see Abram as some sort of superhero who we could never hope to emulate. We have to remember a very important thing. The only human in Scripture, that we are commanded to worship is Jesus Christ. 
every other person we read about is like us. In the New Testament, James writes that Elijah was a man just like us. And the same applies to every Old Testament and New Testament character we read about, including this man Abraham. And we're going to see in these chapters that Abram was far from perfect. Abram was a sinner. He messed up. He made huge mistakes in his life. But thankfully, the promises God made to Abram were not dependent on him for their success. They were dependent on God. The promises are dependent on the promise maker in the Christian life. And Abram is about to see that the promise maker is able to keep his promises. And he's able to keep Abram as well. So that's sort of by way of an introduction, looking then at these, these verses here. Looking at um, chapter 12, the second half of that, we're going to rattle through this really, but it's an important bit for us to realise about Abram. And that is that God keeps Abram in spite of Abram's sin. I'm just going to read a bit from Genesis 12, verse 10 onwards. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram required sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything that he had. And again, thinking back to last week, remember the final promise that God made to Abram, the final blessing God promised to Abram last week is in chapter 12, verse 3. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We saw that God's concern is for the world in the promises he makes to Abram. God blesses Abram so that Abram will bless the world. But here in chapter 12, we have Abram's first contact with the peoples of the world in the shape of Egypt. And he messes up. He messes up very badly. So we can ask the question, should Abram have gone to Egypt in the first place here? Some people think he shouldn't. And verse 10 tells us the famine in Canaan was severe. And later on in the book of Genesis, Abram's great-grandson, Joseph, was to rescue his family from starvation by bringing them to Egypt. And that was clearly God's will. However, to a Jewish reader of Genesis 12, Egypt is always going to ring alarm bells. It's the place where God's people were enslaved and from where God had to rescue his people in the Exodus. So should Abram have trusted in God's provision for him in the land of Canaan? 
Well, it's difficult to say. Perhaps this incident is less about whether Abram should be in Egypt in the first place than how Abram should live when he's there. See, verse 11 of chapter 12 tells us Abram is anxious about his wife Sarah. Sarah is beautiful. I mean, even at the age of around about 65, Abram knew that his wife was a stunner. And he's frightened. He's scared that the Egyptians are going to kill him to get at her. So Abram's solution to this is to lie about Sarah. That's verse 13. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Later on in Genesis, we're told this isn't a total lie. And Sarah really is Abram's half-sister sharing the same father. That's later on in chapter 20. But that's beside the point here. Abram's intention was to deceive the Egyptians, to save his own skin. And he succeeded. He also put his wife in a horrible position. See, Abram's decision to lie affected not just him, it affected Sarah as well. And in the same way, the choices we make each day don't just affect us. We often kid ourselves that they do. They also affect those around us. They affect our family, our friends, our work colleagues. That is why the choices we make are always significant. So Sarah is recognised by the Egyptians as a beautiful woman and she's taken into Pharaoh's palace as one of his wives. And verse 16 tells us that as a result, Abram does very well out of the Egyptians. In fact, he becomes a rich man through Sarah's beauty. And the implication of verse 19, when Pharaoh talks to Abram, finally confronting him about this, is that Pharaoh may well have slept with Sarah. He says he took her as his wife. See, how can we describe Abram's treatment of his wife here? I don't think it's overstating it to say that it closely resembles the behaviour of what we call today maybe a pimp, profiting off the beauty of the woman in his possession. And Abram the pimp might come as a bit of a shock to those of us who are used to seeing him as a spiritual giant. But we need to hear what Genesis is telling us here. See, in some senses, Abram is a spiritual giant. His faith is held up in the New Testament as an example to us to follow. But we need to see here that Abram is still a sinner. And we need to see that his only hope of knowing God and following him is the same as ours today. His only hope is God's grace. See, the Bible is brutally honest about the failings of God's people. And that's what ma- what's making reading some of the biblical narratives a very uncomfortable experience for some of us. I mean, we want to read about spiritual heroes. We want to read about people whose faith in God was unshakable, who attained to some sort of sinless perfection through discipline and through prayer. But what we get is King David the adulterer, Jacob the liar, Samson the philanderer, the disciples of Jesus obsessing about their own greatness rather than worshipping the Son of God standing in front of them. See, the Bible is not interested in stained glass window representations of God's people. Instead, it paints a realistic picture of sinners whose only hope of salvation is God's grace. 
And that's Abram as well here in this passage. So we have Abram here making a mess of things in Egypt. And through a plague, God reveals Abram's deception to Pharaoh and Pharaoh sends Abram and Sarah packing. Now Abram leaves Egypt as a wealthy man. That's chapter 13, verse 2. Abram becomes very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. But also he leaves Egypt as a man who has sinned. And he was put to shame by the integrity of a foreign king. Remember, it's actually Pharaoh is the one who does what is right here, not Abram. So Abram returns to Canaan with a clear knowledge that he is not a strong man. With a knowledge of his own fearfulness, his own dishonesty, his own sin. But what does he do with that depressing self-knowledge? 13 verses 3 to 4. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tents had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. See, Abram returns to where he'd been in chapter 12 and he calls on the name of the Lord. Now here is where we can stop criticising Abram and start learning from him. Because as we look at Abram in Egypt, we have to see something of ourselves there. Every single person here this morning has let God down in their lives. Every single person has let other people down in our lives. We have all said and done things that we regret And some of those regrets we do have to live with. We have all done and said things that we are deeply ashamed of. And it isn't a sign of spiritual health when we claim to be pretty much alright with God and generally we're, we're good people. But it isn't a sign of spiritual health either that we're always acutely aware of our sin if we're constantly living in a state of guilt. See, rather, a sign of spiritual health is that we're aware of our sin, like Abram was, but we call out to God to forgive us our sin and to restore us to a right relationship with Him. See, as Christians, we have to admit that we are like Abram. We are going to live our lives constantly in need of forgiveness. Sometimes just for minor faults, sometimes for major sins, we keep going back to cycles we can't break out of. But it is what we do with that sin that counts. We shouldn't deny it. We shouldn't despair over it. Instead, we need to cry out to the Lord to forgive us and to restore us. And this realisation that God keeps us in spite of our sin should affect us as a church as well. See, as a group of Christians, we cannot expect perfection from one another. I mean, if we do, we're going to be disappointed very quickly. See, what we need, both as individuals and as a church, is what someone once described as a well-trodden path to the cross. A well-trodden path to the cross. We need to be a people who know how to deal with our sin. Not to deny it, not to ignore it, but to take it to the cross of Jesus Christ 
where he took the punishment that we all deserve. See, we need to be people who are honest about our sin. How do we honestly remind one another that the Christian life can only be lived by grace? See, God is able to forgive Abram's sin in Egypt once Abram called on his name. And God is able to forgive our sins and restore us once we acknowledge them and recognize that at the cross they can be dealt with. See, that is why the cross is so precious to Christians. Because on it, Jesus bought forgiveness for everyone who calls on him. On it, God punished our sin so that that sin could not be punished a second time. So Abram is an example for us here. He failed miserably to bring any blessing to the peoples of the earth in his first encounter with them. But he knew enough about God to see that if he called on his name, he could be forgiven. We need to learn that lesson ourselves this morning. We need to take our sins to the cross. And only then can we keep going for Jesus. So God kept Abram in spite of his sin. And then secondly, God keeps Abram even when others desert him. And this is the bit that Brian read out for us. In verse 5 of chapter 13, if you're going to turn that up for a second, we're reintroduced to Abram's nephew, Lot. And I'll just read verses 5 to 7. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. See, Lot has become wealthy along with Abram. Presumably he was in Egypt with Abram and he also benefited from Abram's deception of Pharaoh. And quickly it becomes clear that the land they share is not big enough for the two of them. Verse 7 reminds us that the Canaanites and Perizzites are still in the land so Abram and Lot are in quite a small area living close by one another. But they cannot carry on like this. So in verse 8, Abram tackles the problem head on. He says to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. As we look at those verses, we've got to be struck that Abram is amazingly humble and gracious here. See, let's not forget, Abram is the senior partner in his relationship with Lot. He's more like a surrogate father to Lot than he is an uncle. He's looked after Lot since his father died. He's welcomed Lot into his family and he took Lot with him into the land promised to him by the Lord. So Abram has invited Lot to share with him in all the blessings that God promised to Abram. And yet, even though Abram could have demanded his own rights here, even though the culture of the time stated that Abram could have first choice of the land as the senior relative, Abram humbled himself and invited Lot to choose. See, that sort of humility is costly. And that sort of humility takes courage. But we've also got to be struck that that sort of humility is also Christ-like. 
And I think we need to be clear on this. There are things in the Christian life that are worth fighting for. And there are rights that are worth fighting for. But if you're a Christian here this morning, you're called to sacrifice your own rights for the rights of others. We're called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, it says in Ephesians 5. We're called to remember Jesus' words to his disciples when they were arguing about who was the greatest. Jesus really put them down. He said, For even the Son of Man, even me, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when is it right for a Christian to fight for their rights? And when is it right for us to surrender our rights? It's a difficult question. Perhaps a good principle to bear in mind is who does this affect? If it will harm others for us to surrender our rights, particularly if it will harm people who cannot defend themselves, then it's probably right to defend our rights and fight for them. But the thing is, we need to be honest. If it's primarily a slight to us, an insult to us that we're talking about, then we should be willing to bear that insult the same way that Jesus did. We shouldn't defend our own rights because we follow a saviour who is willing to surrender his rights for us. And part of the sacrificial love that we're called to show to one another and to others is a willingness to surrender what we think is important sometimes for ourselves, for the sake of Christ. That is a hard lesson, but it's something we need to think through and take on board. So Abram is willing to defer to Lot here. And Lot, Lot doesn't really hang about. Verse 10. Lot looked up and saw the whole plain of Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, towards Zoar. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. So Lot moves into the plain of Jordan because it's by far the more attractive spot. When you look closely at verse 10, you see just how attractive it was to Lot. Lot says, The plain of Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. See, Lot seems to believe that by moving into the plain of Jordan, he's moving back to the garden of the Lord, to Eden, to paradise. He is so bowled over by how fertile and attractive the land looks, he presumes that to live there must be to live under God's blessing. I mean, certainly life in the plain of Jordan is a lot more attractive than life in a tent with Abram. See, Lot seems to believe that moving to Jordan was the way out of the curse that had affected the world since Genesis 3 and the way back to God's blessing. The problem is that Lot was badly mistaken. See, in fact, it was only by staying close to Abram and by remaining with him that Lot could have a part in God's promises. By trying to get at them in another way, his own way, Lot actually moved away from God's blessing. And verses 12 to 13 make that clear. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly 
against the Lord. See, Lot is making a mistake here. And in the same way, we need to see that there is no way back to Eden for us apart from trusting in God's promises and apart from trusting in the fulfilment of God's promises. Jesus and his death on the cross for us. See, apart from Jesus, there is no way back, from God, way back to God. Sorry. And the Bible is very clear about that. So anything that looks like a way back to God, a way of blessing, a way into heaven, that either ignores or sidelines Jesus, no matter how attractive it is, is a lie. See, we need to put our whole trust in Christ and his death on the cross for us, rather than in what looks more impressive or more profitable. See, there are loads of books and courses and religions today that promise us happiness, promise us spiritual wholeness, promise us heaven. Yet most of them ignore or sideline Jesus on the cross. There are plenty of varieties of spirituality out there, but unless they lead us to Jesus, then they are empty and capable of delivering us nothing. I mean, it's a cliche to say that we shouldn't judge by appearances. But when it comes to the Christian life, that cliche is a matter of life or death. Judging by appearances can lead us away from Christ, just as Lot was led away from Abram. See, we need to judge things, not by how they appear to us, or how attractive we may find them, but for whether or not they lead us to Christ to knowing him more and to loving him more. So, Lot leaves Abram on his own. Perhaps to this point we're not told that Abram might have been thinking that the promise of his offspring would come through Lot. Lot was his surrogate son. Abram couldn't have children of his own. But now Lot has deserted him. And Abram is living in the land of Canaan alone. It's a far less fertile place, a far less impressive place than the plains of Jordan. See, Abraham might have started questioning whether or not God was actually with him. But if you see in verse 14, he doesn't actually get a chance to question that because God appears to him. I'll just read verses 14 to 17. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. That's our final section this morning. God keeps Abram and he shows him the real rewards of faith. See, God shows his commitment to keep Abram and he promises him that a life lived for God is worth it. See, in verse 10, Lot lifted up his own eyes and decided that the plain of Jordan was for him. In verse 14, God tells Abram to lift up his eyes and then God promises him an amazing and massive inheritance. See, Abram was generous and gracious to Lot in allowing Lot to have the first choice of the land. 
But God here is even more generous and even more gracious to Abram in encouraging him and reassuring him of the reality of his inheritance. See, Lot opted for a piece of land that looked fertile and impressive. But that choice to move near Sodom would ultimately bring him misery. And we're going to see that in a few weeks' time. Abram is seemingly left with the less impressive place, the land of Canaan. But it is Abram who is blessed. See, God promises him land on every point of the compass. Lift up your eyes from where you are. Look north and south, east and west. And he promises him offspring as numerous as the dust on the earth. See, God is committed to blessing Abram. And he's committed to keeping Abram as he waits for the fulfilment of that blessing. So we leave Abram in verse 18, travelling through the land God has promised him with a clearer knowledge and experience of the God in whom he's trusting. See, Abram has learnt that his God is a God of grace who forgives the sins of his people when they come back to him. Abram has learnt that his God is a God who can be trusted even when others desert him, even when other ways of life look more attractive. Abram's God is a God who is committed to keeping his promises and keeping his people. And the great news for us today is that Abram's God is our God. And we can rejoice that he's a God who chooses the weak and the foolish to shame the strong and the wise. God uses people like Abram to follow him, even though he is old and childless and sinful. God calls Abram to Canaan rather than the more impressive plain of Jordan because it's through Abram living in Canaan that God's promises will be fulfilled. You see, this God is our God. This is the God of the cross. The God who chose to save us through the shameful death of his son on a tree rather than in a, in a show of power. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that Abram is following. The God of those who will humble themselves before him and follow him. And this is the God that every one of us this morning can trust. The God who will keep us if we follow him by his power and by his grace. He will keep us the whole journey until his blessings are fulfilled to us. A place in heaven where we will see him face to face. So let's trust in him this week.